All right, welcome back, everybody. And uh, to the moms, uh, God bless you. We are so uh, blessed by your presence in our lives. And, um, you know, I know that this is a wonderful day for some, and it's probably a, a difficult day uh, for others. And for so many people, it's probably a, a healthy mix of both of those things. And so wherever you are on this Mother's Day today, uh, we just pray that the Lord would really meet you here uh, in that place and minister to you and, uh, and bless you. Um, so, so to the moms, thank you so much. Uh, we do appreciate you. It's the hardest job, uh, hardest job in the world by far. So uh, with all that said, uh, turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. We are going to finish this chapter today. We took a bit of a pause uh, last week, of course, and we looked at um, an Old Testament text out of the book of Jeremiah. Um, but, you know, when we last left off in our study of the book of Acts, uh, we saw Paul had just preached what was the very first sermon that's recorded for us uh, by Luke. And remember, they were there in uh, beautiful uh, Antioch of Pisidia. And it was uh, up there in the mountains of what we would call uh, kind of modern day Turkey. And it was on what for Paul and Barnabas was the very, that was the third city on the very first of what would be three different uh, main missionary journeys of Paul. And you remember they were there in Antioch of Pisidia. They were on the Sabbath day, and they were there in this gathering that was happening in the local synagogue. And you see that, uh, remember, respected Rabbi Paul uh, was this recognized guest, and he was kind of given the pulpit and the opportunity to share whatever message it was that was on his heart. And of course, share he did. And he gave this powerful and very compelling. It was a clear and a concise presentation of the gospel, and he really called on everybody there to put their faith in Jesus. And that's precisely where we left off, remember, kind of in verse 41. And now this morning, in the balance of the chapter, we have something super fascinating um, included for us in Luke's inspired account here. Because not only do we now know what it was that Paul preached to these people. But this morning, we're going to get a glimpse together of how it was that they responded to the things that he preached, sort of what happened you know, after the sermon, which is so, so very important because, of course, every time that we share the gospel, every time that a sermon is given, whether it's to a large crowd or whether it's to a small group or whether it's simply one person sharing with another person, there is a response. There is always some sort of a reaction and in our text today, what we're going to see is that there are three very different, distinct reactions that are given to us by those who heard Paul preach. And what's interesting is that they, they are the very same three different and distinct reactions that we still see even now today when the gospel is preached nearly 2,000 years years later. So let's pray. Let's pray for the moms. And let's pray for our time uh, in the word this morning. So Father, we do thank you, Lord, for today. And we thank you, Lord, for our moms. Lord, we thank you for their ministry to each one of us in our lives. Lord, we thank you for those who have been moms to us in our lives. Lord, we thank you for 
all the women uh, who work so hard, Lord, to take such good care of, uh, of all of us, Lord. And we thank you for uh, the way that you've created and instilled that, um, those abilities and that desire uh, in them. And so, Father, we pray you'd bless them today, Lord, as we shared, Lord, if there's some that this is a difficult day, Lord, we pray that you'd come alongside and bring comfort, Lord, and for those who are celebrating today, Lord, we pray that you would bless them, Lord, today especially. And Father, we pray as we go to your word this morning, Lord, that you would, again, just help us to, to settle and to focus our hearts on you. Lord, we pray that, you're, uh, that you would be our teacher and that your Holy Spirit would be the one to, uh, to just illuminate and to bring enlightenment. Lord, give us insight into your heart this morning, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So remember, in the sermon that Paul preached, remember his approach with this crowd in this synagogue of devout Jews. And remember, there were some Gentile God-fearers there. These were those Gentiles who had abandoned all of the pagan idolatry and were following after the God of Israel. And remember, Paul's approach was to start with kind of a summary of the whole history of God's very active dealings on behalf of his people. All of those ways that God was so active and so gracious and so involved in their lives. Beginning very first as he called Abraham and then he delivered and he guided and he provided for them during their time in the wilderness. He gave them the land of Canaan. He looked after them for that entire period of the judges. Remember the way he even graciously gave them a king in Saul when they cried out and clamored that they wanted a man to rule over them. The way finally that he blessed them with the greatest king in their history, that man after God's own heart, King David. And then Paul spoke of kind of the pinnacle, right? The high point, the greatest expression of God's grace to them all. And that was the coming of their Messiah in the person of Jesus as the long-awaited Christ. And then he went on to say that those who trusted in Jesus could receive forgiveness of their sins. And not only would they receive forgiveness, but that they would be justified in the sight of God. That it would be, God would see them just as if they'd never sinned. And he said that it was this, this was a relationship with God that the Old Testament and the law could never provide to them. So that's where we pick up, right where we left off. Let's read again in verse 42 of Acts chapter 13. It says that when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So for the very first time, perhaps ever, these Gentiles had heard the gospel of the grace of God, and they wanted to know more. And the reason that they wanted to hear more of what Paul had said to them is because what they had just heard was mind-boggling to them. And I think this is a little bit hard for us to understand because we live in a context that is so very different than this Jewish context there of the first century in which Paul was ministering. We are so very accustomed 
to the whole concept that God loves the whole world, that God loves the Jews and he loves the Gentiles. And we've just kind of come to accept that, but that was not at all the understanding then. And so this thought was nothing short of astounding to them. The idea that the one true God of the Jews could also love the Gentiles. In this Jewish context, that was unimaginable, that God's grace was that great and that it could possibly include them, right, the Gentiles. For them, this was like an explosion in their minds. And so you bet they wanted to hear more because they just needed to be sure that they had heard right. And I think as we think about these people, I think that they speak to us even today of so many who hear the gospel and they really embrace the idea of the gospel, but they think themselves unworthy of the gospel. They're, they're, but they're desperate to find out, again, if this good news could possibly be true for them, because somehow they think that their sin is unique. They think that they've gone too far. They think that they're broken too much, or that maybe God could love everyone else except for them, because they're not worthy of his love. And so these are people who seek to know more. And maybe for some of you, that was your experience. Maybe you have someone in your life, even right now, who's struggling with these same thoughts. And for us, we just need to continue to love them. We need to continue to demonstrate God's grace to them and to continue to show them from the scriptures that God's word absolutely applies to them, just like it applies to each one of us. And we need to continue, first and foremost, to pray for them that their hearts would really be softened so that they could really hear the voice of the Spirit as he's preparing them for that time when they'll finally surrender to Jesus. And that's, I think, what we see next. There were some here in Antioch that were already prepared to do that, right? The seeds had been previously planted. The soil was perfectly ready. There's another group that we see next. In addition to those who kind of went their way wanting to know more, we see now in verse 43 that when the congregation had broken up, it says that many of the Jews and the devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So these were those, I think, whose hearts were prepared, where the, the seeds now of the gospel had fallen into good soil and immediately began to yield good fruit, as some of these people immediately trusted in Jesus. Notice Paul and Barnabas here, they're exiting the service. These people are literally following them out the door. They don't want the service to end. They don't want Paul to stop preaching. And so what do Paul and Barnabas tell them to do? They tell them to continue in the grace of God, which is significant because I think what it shows us is that they had already started to trust in the grace of God. They had started to trust in the fact that what Paul said was really true, that forgiveness and justification was available to them even right here and now. 
They began to begin to believe that Jesus was the Messiah who had been promised to them in these very scriptures that they had been studying for so many years. They began to really believe and to trust that their relationship with God wasn't based, as they had thought, in the law of God, but it was based instead in the grace of God. And so Paul tells them, just continue on the way that they had started. And it's interesting, to the Colossians, later, Paul would write what is one of my very favorite verses. He says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So how was it that we each received Jesus Christ? It was by grace. So how now are we to continue walking with him? By that very same grace. So again, underline verse 43 in your Bible, or better yet, burn it deeply into your mind, right? Brand it deeply onto your heart, because continuing in grace is just as important as beginning in grace, Grace is something that we can never, ever leave as the basic principle and as the foundation of our relationship with the Lord. And I think for far too many believers, we just think of grace as the introduction into the Christian life, as if it's something then that just kind of gets us in the door where we just sort of take over and go on from there. But God wants us to remain in grace as the foundation of everything that happens with him. Remember back in Acts chapter 11, what did Barnabas say to the believers there in the other Antioch when he first met them? He said, continue in this grace that he sensed when he got there. So what does Paul tell them here when they want to know more? He says, continue in grace, continue in grace. And what's especially ironic is that we come to learn that they didn't do that at all. Because it was this same group of believers here in Antioch of Pisidia, in the heart of that region of Galatia, who had to be addressed later in the letter to the Galatians because they had departed from the grace of God. They had started to believe that teaching, those who were coming in and saying, you know what, it's nice that you say you believe in Jesus and that you think you're forgiven, but if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to kind of take things to the next level, then what you need to do is also keep all of these rules and these regulations because real spirituality and a sense of misery really go hand in hand. And of course, we know that the very same thing is still happening today in the Christian experience of so many people. Because what happens is we start to get it into our heads that our progress with God is based on how well we're performing for God. And we set up these kind of rules of these standards of legalism, right? Based on what we're doing and how well we're doing it or how 
often we're doing whatever it is we say we're supposed to be doing. And then we start to judge ourselves and we judge everybody around us based on these very same miserable standards that we find out we're not even living up to. And then inevitably we fail and we get discouraged. And then we decide that we just can't keep doing this Christian thing anymore. It's too hard. We don't belong here. We probably don't belong anywhere and that probably nobody anywhere really likes us anyway because we just didn't do it well enough. And what a terrible and a tragic place to be. And we've seen it way too many times lived out in the local church. Because instead of simply continuing in the grace of God, according to the Spirit of God, we've somehow decided that we can make a go of it on our own. And here's what Paul wrote to the Galatians when he wrote to the Galatians. He says, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit... Are you now being made perfect by the flesh, by your own human efforts, by simply trying and by simply working harder? We need to continue in the grace of God, continue in the things that he has done, continue in the things that he is doing, not on what we are trying to do. And continue, I think, as well to be excited to share that very same grace with those around us, because really, that's good news, isn't it, that's worth sharing. And I think that's precisely what we see happened here during this week. This group was so excited about the things that the Lord had done for them and the things that they sensed he was doing in them that they wanted other people to experience the very same thing. So look at what we read next in verse 44. Remember, Paul had agreed to come back and to preach again the following week. And in verse 44, it says that on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. What's that old expression that good news what, travels fast? And it didn't take long before the good news of the grace of God brought multitudes of people to hear for themselves from the word of God. And Luke tells us here that almost the whole city had come out. Now, I think we can assume that this was a mostly Gentile crowd, right? They'd come out to hear if the things they had heard were really true, that there was this one true God, the God of the Jews, and that he loved the Gentiles as well, in spite of, of their pagan, wicked, idolatrous background, and that he was still offering to them mercy and grace and forgiveness and justification and reconciliation. And so we can picture them there, right, on this Sabbath day, and they're spilling out of the synagogue, filling up the streets or the open square of the city there. And what a sight this must have been. It's like an evangelist's dream come true. And it says in verse 45, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they rejoiced that so many had found the one true... Oh. Oh, wait. Yours doesn't say that. No. What it says is, 
when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. So we've already seen those who just needed more time to understand the grace of God. And then we looked at those who were wholeheartedly embraced and then they were encouraged to continue in the grace of God. Now here's this other group, this third group, who simply couldn't stomach the thought of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ and they rejected it outright. Now, every time we read about this, Anywhere in the Bible, I don't know about you, but for me, it seems so strange to us that these religious people who had waited so long for their Messiah nationally would now reject him personally when he was finally presented to them so very clearly. And yet the reason was that they wanted to keep that strict division between Jews and Gentiles. They wanted to keep it socially. They certainly wanted to keep it theologically. And if this Jesus that Paul preached was to be the Messiah of all men, and if he was to bring redemption to all men, then they wanted no part of that Jesus. And this is what I believe is at the heart of their hard-heartedness. Now, we only know from their reaction that they rejected Jesus, but we notice that the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Luke, he's the one who tells us that they did it, what? Out of envy. Notice it's not because of some sort of philosophical or theological objection. It's not because of the way that Paul handled the scriptures or he interpreted the prophecies. It was simply because of envy. And while I'm sure that they were very jealous of this huge crowd that had assembled to hear Paul preach, their envy, I think, was so much deeper than just that. They could simply not accept a teaching that opened up the floodgates to say that Gentiles could now be made equal in God's sight with his people, the Jews. They couldn't endure the thought that God's grace was now available to those people. And so they reject out of hand they reject the very message which might save them in order to keep it from saving others. And we see them doing everything they can to keep the message from going out. They're arguing with Paul. They're calling him names. They're contradicting him even as he's teaching. Now, just imagine the scene. It's like the Jerry Springer show or something, right? It's like something we might see today. You know, people have their phones out and they're trying to record this because it's so unbelievable. There's so much hatred and animosity and unbridled emotion in the way that they're rejecting this good news. It is hard for us to even understand how this could be. And yet Jesus said something which was remarkable about the way and the reasons why people would reject him and reject his message. And he said it, coincidentally, connected with the most famous verse 
in the Bible. Of course, John 3.16 is where he said that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he says in the very next verse that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then here it is in verse 19. Jesus says, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And what this tells us is that as God looks at the rejection of the Son, the rejection of the salvation that's offered freely in his Son and through his gospel, as God looks at all of these excuses and at all the deflections and at all the reasons that are ever given, he looks right through all of those things. And at the root, Jesus says, it is all because, he says, the core reason is because of darkness. The core reason is that there is some kind of darkness at the core of a person's life that they simply do not want to give up to come into the light now and to begin to really walk with God. Now that darkness may be some of those simple sins, right? Sex and drugs and rock and roll. The darkness may be some of the more complex sins like pride, where we're just exalting our own ideas above God's, where we're still thinking that our thinking and our ideas are somehow above his. It could be good old materialism, right? That I have no desire to make God the master passion of my life because I just want to continue to achieve and get to the next level and get this next thing and acquire a bunch more stuff that I can just live comfortably in. For some people, it could be a relationship because somehow inherently they know that if they become a Christian, that something here in this situation is going to have to change. Something's going to have to be given up and they're not willing to do that. It could simply be selfishness or self-ism, really. The worship of self, which is so very prominent, isn't it, in our culture today, where we want to be the ones sitting on the throne of our lives. And we don't want to be accountable to anyone else. We don't want anyone else telling us what's right or wrong or what's good or bad, even the God who created us. We don't even want him telling us these things. We just want it how we want it, when we want it. And when we consider this list, we can call these things whatever we want to call them, but whatever we think it might be, one day all the rejection of Jesus is going to be exposed at its core as this darkness. It's all something in our hearts that we loved more than we loved him. It was never, it will never be about, I was too intelligent to believe. It was never, it will never be about, God didn't give me enough evidence to believe. 
it always comes back to some sort of a moral darkness and a love for sin. And I think all we need to do is look around, we maybe look inside, all we need to do is engage with the world at all to have no doubt in our minds that this is true. That the rejection of Jesus is based in a heart that doesn't want to let go of that darkness and doesn't want to let in that light. And in today's world, there is so much confusion, right? Everybody has my truth and there's your truth and there's this whole relativism. But here from the clarity of heaven, what Jesus is saying essentially is believe me on this, that's what's at the core of all unbelief. And that that hard-hearted unbelief, Paul goes on to say, comes with it some pretty serious consequences. Because look now, look at how Paul and Barnabas, starting in verse 46, look how they respond to this response from those who have rejected the gospel. In verse 46, it says that then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And Paul effectively says, okay, if you Jews aren't receiving this, then we're going to do exactly what Isaiah 49 prophesied would be done by your own Messiah, Jesus. We're going to turn now, take this message, and be a light to the Gentiles. And notice specifically that Paul says that this happened because they proved themselves to be unworthy in, the, in rejecting the gospel. Paul says they were moving, look at verse 46, he says, since you reject it, you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. They judged themselves. God has not judged them. They have judged themselves, is what Paul explains. And so here Paul is so strongly laying the foundation, he's emphasizing their personal responsibility in their rejection of Jesus and in the choosing of their own eternal destination. He says, you have judged yourselves based on what you've done with Jesus Christ. He makes this a very clear-cut matter of personal responsibility. And every one of us have a personal responsibility to the gospel. We also see next, not only those who reject the Lord Jesus, but we see that very same personal responsibility in those who accept him as well. Because look what Luke tells us in verse 48. It says that when the Gentiles heard this, when they heard that salvation had come to them, he says they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So they praised the Lord for this message that salvation had come to them in Jesus, and they believed on Jesus, and they were saved. At least, 
as many of them as had been appointed to eternal life. Now, we read a phrase like that, and we have to ask, what in the world does that even mean? Didn't we just say that this was a matter of personal responsibility, and yet here it sounds like they had been appointed, or some of your translations might say that they were ordained, or some of them say that they were chosen for eternal life. That all sounds a lot more like God's sovereignty. So which is it? Did God choose them, or did they choose God? And the answer, of course, is yes. The Bible teaches that God is omniscient. And of course, what that means is that he knows everything. It means that there is nothing that God doesn't know. And so included in all of those things that God knows is the name of every person who will ever ultimately put their trust in Jesus for salvation. And God knows it long before we ever know it. He knows it before. He has foreknowledge of it. And it's based on that foreknowledge that he then chooses or appoints or predestines those people for salvation. Here's the way Paul explained it in his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now this is the whole of the Christian life. And all of it, Paul says, is a product of God's foreknowledge, his predestination, his choosing, all of it comes out of that foreknowledge. He knows what we are going to do, and then he acts based on that. He knows what's going to happen before it happens, so he knows each person, whether they will choose what they'll do with Jesus before they do it, whether that's to reject him and judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life, or whether that's to receive him and his gracious offer of salvation, and then to be appointed to eternal life. And the fact of the matter is that each and every one of us listening this morning, and each and every person in this world, we judge ourselves for our eternity. We determine our own eternal destination. And we do it based on what we do with Jesus and the message of salvation that is found in him. It's our choice. We are ultimately, eternally responsible for that choice. Now, admittedly, this is one of the things that people especially do not like about the idea of the gospel. And they do not like it, especially here in our culture, because we live in this crazy time when no one is responsible for anything. Everything has become all about blame shifting. Everything's become all about this kind of a victim mentality where nothing is my fault, it's all someone else's fault. 
it's how I was raised, or it's where I was raised, or it's my place in society, or it's the friends I had, or it's my lack of education, or the opportunities that I wasn't given. No matter what I do, or what I think, or what I say, when those repercussions then begin to come down on me, it's always somebody else's fault. And the problem is that when people are raised like this in this culture that is shaping them, whether they realize it or not, we watch people continue to be able to skirt their own personal responsibility for their actions and for their beliefs and the things they say and the things they do. And then we try to carry that whole mentality over to God. And somehow we believe that ultimately we can stand before God and somehow we're going to be able to blame shift. That we're going to be able somehow to come up with some kind of excuse that this was not my responsibility, that this was somehow someone else's responsibility because I never trusted in Jesus. And this whole mindset is so dominant today. And when we just stop and we look at it, it is such an incredible deception of the devil. And it's one of the very reasons why we need to be so thankful for the word of God, because it just says these things plainly and clearly and directly. And we can look at the Bible and at least we know where we stand. What am I going to do with this when it comes to the point where it's just between me and between God? You've heard that expression that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come in on equal footing. And it's into this confusion of our world that God speaks with such clarity into the midst of the confusion. And not only, I think, with the clarity, but he speaks these truths in a way that we know deep down in our hearts instinctively to be true. That there will, there is, there's personal responsibility. And somehow you may, sometimes you may hear people say that, you know, they can't believe in a God who would cast someone into eternal judgment. Well, that's nothing but blame shifting. Because God does nothing of the sort. All that God does is simply to confirm the reservations that we've already made for ourselves. Peter tells us in his letter that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Right? So if God had his choice, if it was God's responsibility, then everyone would be in heaven with him. But he gives us the responsibility, he gives us the freedom to choose for ourselves, because it's only in the freedom to choose that makes the choice meaningful. It's only because God gave us the ability to choose that our choice actually means anything. We make the choice, and he simply confirms the choice that we've made. Now, I know this is a lot, right? Especially on Mother's Day. And this may have been better in person, as everybody does mom a favor and comes to church with her. Mother's Day is one of the highest attended Sundays typically of the year. But the reality is that there is a sobering side 
to rejecting Jesus. And the very worst thing that we could ever do is to not be honest about it. So if you're listening to this and you haven't already turned it off, but it is making you uncomfortable, maybe that's a good thing. Because the possibility is that the Spirit is really speaking to your heart and He's drawing you to Jesus. He's forcing you to confront some of these things in your own heart. Maybe you're listening today and you have a prodigal. Know that the Lord loves them. And know that He loves them even more than you love them. And know that He, by His Spirit, is still working in them, and that he hasn't given up on them. Okay, let's finish up this morning. Look at verse 49. There were some we know wanted to hear more. There were others who readily received Jesus. There were some who steadily rejected him. But at the end of the day, we see the spirit was moving. And look what it says in verse 49. It says that the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region, but... The Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. Here the Spirit was working, but these Jews were stirring things up. It wasn't even enough for them to just reject Jesus. They had to go even a step further. They pulled out what we'd call the nuclear option to get rid of Paul and Barnabas and get them run out of town. And that was that they stirred up the women. Okay. Now, I'm not the smartest calf in the herd, but I'm smart enough to know that I should just leave this alone. Okay. And all I will simply say is that if you want to stir up the prominent men of the synagogue and of the city, the best way to get them, if maybe they haven't been listening to you, the best way to get them is to get their wives. And the rest is history. I think there's some truth, arguably, in that old saying that the man is the head, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head any way that she wants. So guys at home, just smile along, look over and nod your head. Ladies, happy Mother's Day. Right? So Paul and Barnabas, they're kicked out of the city. Look at verse 41. It says, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So away they went onto their next gospel stop, which we'll look at together next time. But as we close, I think we need to note the way that they went away. They went away filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Remember what just happened. Despite the fact that they had been rejected, driven out, that the women had been stirred up against them, it says there that there was joy that filled them. And of course, the joy wasn't because of the rejection, but it was because of the work that they knew that the Spirit had done there in that city. They had been faithful to deliver the gospel. It had been received by some, and Paul and Barnabas could now leave with joy because they knew that the Holy Spirit was still there. 
the Holy Spirit was still present. The Holy Spirit would still be working there in that city, that there were people there who didn't have a relationship with God, that now did have a relationship with God, and that the Holy Spirit stayed there in that city, in those people, because you can drive Paul and Barnabas out of the city, but you cannot drive the Holy Spirit out of that city. And what the Spirit had started, he would surely be faithful to bring to completion. It's experiences like this, no doubt, that would have Paul write to the Philippians that he was confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And maybe some of us have had a similar experience like this when maybe we've been ministering to someone, we've been blessed perhaps maybe to be a part of bringing them to that place where they've accepted the Lord, and yet we knew that they were going back into a situation where we couldn't go with them or where we wouldn't be able and available to minister to them, and we had no other choice but to entrust them and their growth to the Lord, to trust that he would be the one to complete that good work that he had started. And I think that it's important for us to think about this because this is such a freeing truth to really understand that it's not dependent upon us. Right? Knowing that the only way they're going to make it is because it's the Lord who's going to keep a firm grip on them. It's not us at all. It's nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the Lord. And maybe that's an encouragement for some of you moms today as you think about your kids, as it relates to them. Or maybe it's a more personal encouragement to some of us today as we look just at the work that the Lord is doing in us. And we know maybe how powerfully it started, but no one is more aware of how far that work is from being finished than we are personally. And then just for us to be able to rest and to trust in the heart of God and the promises of God in his word and the ability that he has to continue that work in whatever circumstance, whatever situation that we find ourselves in. And we trust in that because he's faithful and because he's able and because he's present and because we know that he is always working. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and we thank you for what a wonderful encouragement it is to us. And Lord, certainly if Paul had had his way that day, Lord, we know that everyone would have received Jesus. Lord, we know that that's your heart as well. Lord, and yet it's important for us to remember that this is not a burden that we need to carry, Lord, that this is not dependent upon us. Lord, that there is a responsibility of each person and that they're responsible to you, Lord, and that there's nothing that we can do Lord, to interfere with that, Lord, you won't even interfere with that. And so, Father, help us, Lord, to be praying for people, Lord, and to be ministering to people, Lord, and to be sharing your good grace with people, Lord, and then entrusting those people to you, Lord, and to the work of your Spirit, 
to do the very same thing in each one of their lives, Lord, that he did in each one of our lives. Lord, that miracle as you brought even each one of us to that place of surrender. And so, Lord, we pray that, Lord, if there's anyone listening today who is feeling your spirit tugging at them, Father, we pray that they would simply cry out to you, Lord, just in the quiet of their own hearts, Lord, that they would look to the person next to them, Lord, and that they would say, I want to receive Jesus, I want to be saved, I want to trust in his work on the cross to provide the forgiveness for my sins so that I can be justified before God the Father. And so, Lord, we thank you, Lord, and we praise you for your word and for your spirit and for the way that they work together in our hearts. And we ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.